Good to see you again. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. Today we have our last lesson focusing on the life of Jacob. Jacob now returns to Canaan. And we're going to see in our lesson today some of the same themes that we've been looking at, but God does not want us to miss as we move through Genesis that we can trust him, that he is the faithful God, and he proves his faithfulness again and again and again. And we're going to see that today in a special way in the life of Jacob with his return to Canaan. But let's pray, and then we'll see how all that unfolds. Let's pray. Our great God, thank you for this opportunity to look more into your word, and I pray that you'd help me to be able to explain this word, God, as we look at it today. Lord, we know that you have wonderful things in your law, precious truths that we need to grab hold of. So I pray that you would enable us to do that today. Even use me, God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now we're going to start by bridging the gap between where we were last time and where we're going to be with our main time today. So please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 30. Genesis 30. And we'll be picking it up in verse 25 in summary fashion. I'm not going to be reading through this text, but as I'm talking, you can kind of glance at the text and generally see how we're moving along. What happened to Jacob and his family after he had all those kids and he worked the extra seven years that he had to work for Laban? Remember, he did seven years for Leah, and then he was required to do another seven years for Rachel. Well, in Genesis, Genesis 30, verse 25, we see Jacob courteously ask permission to return to Canaan. Says to Laban, hey, you know, I got to get back there. Jacob doesn't really have much wealth of his own at this point, but at least he has his wives and his kids. But Laban is loving how the Lord has been blessing Laban and Laban's household as long as Jacob has been working for him, and he wants him to keep working for him. So he cuts another deal with Jacob. He This deal involves certain irregularly colored animals, or rather the offspring of those animals. Irregularly colored animals are going to belong to Jacob from now on. And that's going to be a, a new source, a wage for Jacob to acquire wealth. And because he's getting these animals, Jacob will continue to work for Laban. Now, what plays out after this is very interesting. It's a little bit debated as to what precisely occurs. But in my view, what, what ends up playing out is a battle of the tricksters. You have Laban really trying to cheat Jacob. And Jacob trying to counter Laban and also trying to cheat Laban. And this starts with the deal. Laban thinks he's pulled another one over on Jacob. He's got him for a very easy wage, a very uh, non-costly wage for Laban. But what Jacob does is that he tries to manipulate the breeding process of these animals so that he gets more animals of his color. And what's interesting is that Jacob's scheme actually works. The animals of Laban start producing all these irregularly colored animals. Laban sees this and he's like, all right, we need to change your wages. Instead of all the regularly colored animals, just one, just the speckled animal or just the spotted animal. He changes, he says, these are the offspring that will belong to you from now on. But once Laban does this, well, an interesting thing happens. All the animals start producing that color, or at least all the strong animals, the ones that Jacob actually wants, their offspring. They start producing that color. Laban's like, oh, I don't, I don't like this. Now it's going to be a different color. Now it's going to be the ones that are uh, brown or a different, different irregularity. But 
but then the animals start producing that color. And over time, what happens is that Jacob's flock continues to increase. The irregularly colored animals keep getting added to his group, but the flock of Laban continues to diminish. So Jacob is really becoming a wealthy man. And remember, wealth was in terms of animals during those days, not yet in the term of money or other things. Jacob is continuing to become a wealthy man at Laban's expense. And he's acquiring donkeys and camels and male and female servants and more. But how precisely is this happening? I mentioned Jacob is scheming, really. He's trying to manipulate the breeding process. But is this turning out well because Jacob is a better schemer than Laban? Well, even if Jacob is being crafty, I don't think, and if you read through this passage, I think you'll come to the same conclusion, I don't think there's a scientific or human explanation for this success of Jacob. It had to come from another source, and that is it came from God. <laughs> if you, again, if you look at it, it's really kind of interesting. Jacob does this kind of funny thing with sticks. It's sticking them in water, and the animals come out a certain color. As far as we know, there's no scientific way that's possible. But God allowed that to, God allowed Jacob to do that. But God was the one who was actually making the animals produce what they did. They were all in his control. And so God granted Jacob success. And Jacob himself realizes this. In Genesis 31, when he's talking to his wives, he says, it was God who gave me Laban's wealth. And it was God who protected me from Laban's schemes. So he recognizes God was the one who was really doing it. But how do you think all of this made Laban and his family feel toward Jacob? not very happy with him, right? Very jealous. And Jacob notices, notices this too. And then God speaks to Jacob. This is six years after he started working under this new deal. So then God speaks to Jacob and he says, go back to Canaan. It's time for you to return to Canaan and I'll be with you. I'll be with you as you return. But this brings up a new problem for Jacob. Will Laban actually let Jacob leave? Jacob doesn't like, or Laban doesn't like Jacob so much right now. And if Jacob tries to leave, Laban might try to take back his daughters, or maybe even take Jacob's wealth by force. Afraid of this, Jacob decides to pull another trick. When Laban's away at a sheep shearing festival, Jacob gathers his family, his possessions, and he flees secretly back toward Canaan. Doesn't let Laban know he's going, and he, he's able to get away. There's something Jacob doesn't know. Jacob doesn't know that his wife, Rachel, has her own trick. Before she leaves, she steals Laban's household gods. Now, we do not know why she did that. She obviously thought there was some benefit to that. We don't know precisely, but she takes these idols. And in part, due to this theft, Laban gathers some men and he comes chasing after Jacob's group. And this could be a disaster for Jacob. The very thing he feared might come to pass. It might be that Jacob does take his daughters back and does plunder Jacob's wealth. But who prevents Laban from doing this? Once again, it's God. When they, or before they meet, before Jacob and Laban meet, God appears to Laban in a dream and basically says to him, don't you mess with Jacob. Don't say anything, anything to him that would divert him from his course. 
So when they, they do meet, there's a bit of an argument between the two, but Laban doesn't prevent Jacob from leaving. He also looks for his household gods, but Rachel is able to hide them. It's a little tense between the two for a while, but eventually they decide to drop their grievances against each other and make a covenant of peace, which is what they do. They set up a little memorial and they they have a ritual meal together. And then the two part, Laban going back to Haran and Jacob going on his way to Canaan. Now, this is very this is very significant because Jacob's next stratagem, this fleeing in secret from Laban, it succeeds. But again, we have to ask, why did it succeed? It almost didn't succeed. Rachel's little subterfuge almost broke the whole plan. But why did Jacob escape without loss? Again, it's because God caused him to succeed. God was the one who brought Jacob success. And this isn't this the theme that we've been seeing all along? God has been with Jacob. Jacob has all these different schemes, but it's the one who, but it's God who's the one granting success. And this brings us up to our main text today. Dealing with Laban, that was difficult. But that's small potatoes compared to the really big issue of what about Esau? Will Esau accept Jacob's return to Canaan? So now look at Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32, and we're going to actually do Genesis 32 and 33 today. It's a big amount of text, so we're going to do it in a couple of different sections, starting with Genesis 32, 1 to 21. I'm going to read Genesis 32, 1 to 21, and follow along with me as I read. It says, Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, This is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Zair, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he's coming to meet you. And four hundred men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, or that is, O Yahweh, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only, I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you, and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. So he spent the night there, 
Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He delivered them into the hands of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on before me. Put a space between droves. He commanded the one in front, saying, My brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going? And to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. And he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed the droves, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. You shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him, while he himself spent that night in the camp. All right. Well, let's start our analysis of this passage with basic observations. Let's think about how old Jacob is at this point. 77, and we saw this before, he was 77 when he left Canaan, and he spent 20 years in Haran, seven years for each wife, and then six years with this extra deal. How old is Jacob now? Seventy-seven plus twenty. Ninety-seven years old. Ninety-seven years old. Now remember, ninety-seven back then is not quite like ninety-seven today. They did live longer, even in Jacob's time. And certainly we're going to see, even though he's gotten older, he is still a strong man. Notice another reassurance from God right at the beginning of this passage. In verse 1, it says that God sends angels to meet Jacob. Multiple angels. We don't know what they said or did, but they were there. And so Jacob names the place Mahanaim, which means double camp. It's the place where God and Jacob both camped in the same place. That's, that's what he was thinking. Now, notice Jacob's first attempt to reconcile with Esau in verses 3 to 5. His first step in that attempt. He sends messengers to Esau in the area in which Esau is living, the region of Zair, also called Edom. Edom is another name for Esau and his descendants. This would have been southeast of the Dead Sea, southeast corner of Canaan. So he sends these messengers to Esau, and notice what he tells them. He tells, the, these messengers are to tell Esau that, or where Jacob has been, and how Jacob has prospered. But more importantly, notice the way he addresses Esau. In these messages, he calls him, my lord. He refers to himself as Esau's servant. He also expresses his desire to find favor in Esau's eyes. But notice the report that the messengers bring back to Jacob. They say, uh, Esau's coming, but he's bringing 400 men. Now, in verse 7, we see Jacob's response to this. It says he was greatly afraid and distressed. That's a pretty heavy description. That's pretty emphatic. Why is Jacob afraid? You can go ahead and answer that. What does he think will happen? That's right, that Esau will kill him or will attack him. And we see that immediately following in verse 8. Why would he be bringing 400 men? I mean, it's not like these guys are just all coming to say hi. 
maybe this is an attack force. And Jacob, he has acquired servants and he has his family, but he can't handle 400 men. And so that's why he comes up with his little his plan to mitigate losses in verse 8. He divides his possessions and people into two companies. So if one is attacked, the other can get away. Now, I think maybe you can feel something of Jacob's anxiety at this news. And notice in verse 9, praise to God. Verses 9 to 12, he prays. This is a very interesting prayer. Notice in this prayer how he addresses God. He says, you are the God of Abraham. You are the God of Isaac. You are Yahweh. And notice what he confesses to God in verse 10. He says, he says I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and faithfulness that you have shown me. Now, the word for loving kindness in the New American Standard translation that I'm using, that's that Hebrew word chesed. That's a very important Hebrew word. And if you remember, I think we might have talked about it before. Chesed means covenant love, faithful love, translated as loving kindness in the New American Standard. Jacob is noticing just how much covenant love he's seen from God toward him. And notice the example that Jacob cites of this love. He said, I crossed out of Canaan with just a staff. I had nothing. But I'm coming back now as two whole companies. I have this great family. I have all this wealth. Jacob acknowledges, you did this for me, God. I didn't really do this for myself. You did this. And I'm not worthy of you doing that for me. Now notice Jacob's request in verse 11. He rehearses all this with God, but then he prays, deliver me, please, from my brother Esau. He's very honest with God about this. He says, I'm afraid of him. I fear him. I fear that he will attack me and he'll attack my family. So God, please deliver me. And as part of his appeal, Jacob cites two promises that God made to Jacob in the past. In verse 9, he says, you told me to return to Canaan and you told me that you would prosper me. You said you'd be with me. In verse 12, he says, you promised that you would multiply my descendants and prosper me. So God, keep your promises. Deliver me from Esau. Now, interestingly, after this prayer, in verse 13 and following, Jacob decides to send a series of gifts to Esau to try and appease Esau. We won't go through all the details there. But in verse 20, do note that Jacob doesn't know if this plan will work. He's, after he says, I'm going to try and appease Esau with this, he says, perhaps he will accept me. Maybe. Perhaps. Now, let's pause a moment and ask a few interpretation questions. Oh, I see that we need to make an announcement. Uh, Caleb or whoever is doing that, go ahead and make that announcement. Okay. Okay, well, uh, thank you for making that announcement. All right, so we've 
observed this passage, we've noticed some important details, let's ask a few interpretation questions. For Jacob to confess that he is unworthy of God's covenant love, what has Jacob realized about his past life? What do you think? This is kind of a new thing from Jacob. He hasn't really said something like this before. So what does he realize about himself? Yeah, and in that scheming and manipulation, I think you're totally right. What did he do? What does he confess that he did? If he's unworthy, then not as he, he has not lived up to the standard to which a person being blessed by God ought to. In other words, he recognizes his sin. He recognizes his sin. He recognizes his foolishness. And yet he recognizes how God loved him and blessed him. And so he says, God, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy of all the loving kindness and faithfulness that you have shown to me. But I think you're totally right, Ken. This is part of his showing maturity. And really, Jacob has changed a lot since he left Canaan in these 20 years. God not only has prospered him and kept promises to him, but Jacob has, to some degree, become humbled. He realizes, at least in part, that it was God who was making all these things happen, not Jacob. Jacob had his plans, he had his schemes, he had his tricks, but it was God who was granting Jacob success. And Jacob realizes that now. And it's part of the reason why he importunes God now in this moment. But what about this plan for appeasing? Is Jacob's plan with these appeasing gifts a sign of lack of faith? Is it kind of like, God, please help me, but uh, in case you don't, uh, I'm going to try and do this. Maybe that is one way we could interpret it. But I'm inclined to give Jacob the benefit of the doubt. Just because you believe in God's provision and just because you rely on God doesn't mean that you just sit back and do nothing. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to act wisely. In fact, when we go to the book of Proverbs, it will talk about how useful a gift can be sometimes. Proverbs 18, 16 says, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. And isn't that exactly what Jacob's trying to do right now with Esau? God is a God who uses means. And God has called his people, including us, to act wisely and in faith. Those things are not mutually exclusive. You can act wisely and still be acting in faith. Jacob may have thought to himself, Maybe God will use these gifts to move Esau's heart favorably toward me. But ultimately, and I think Jacob realized this, Esau's response was in God's hands, not Jacob's. These gifts could be ineffective or they could be effective. It would be God who would make that happen. I think Jacob is beginning to realize this. So I'm not, I'm inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt in terms of whether this indicates faith or not. But now Jacob has to spend another night. He's probably not in Mahanaim anymore. He's in a new place. And imagine what that night must have been like as you approach this unknown, this great uncertainty that could result in your death and the death and dispersion of all that you've accomplished, all that you've gained. How would you feel? I'm sure, it would be a time where he's tempted to great anxiety, a time of great tension, and 
Moses, our writer of Genesis, he has masterfully crafted this narrative so that we feel Jacob's tension. We know Esau is coming, but we got to wait. We got to wait to see what happens. We got to wait for the night to pass, just like Jacob does. The hours drag on. The question hangs in the air. What will Esau do? But then something very mysterious happens. And this is our next section. Genesis 32, verses 22 to 32. Let's read what happens. Let me find our spot here. 22. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel. And he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Now, wow. What just happened here? Let's make some observations. Notice that Jacob isolates himself in verses 22 to 23 by sending all his family across the Jabbok stream. Jacob is now alone. But he suddenly finds himself wrestling with a man. How did this start? Where did this man come from? We don't know. I'm not even sure Jacob knew. But notice how long the wrestling match lasts. Through the night until daybreak. That's a long time. Do you think you could wrestle someone for that long? And Jacob's not tapping out. He's 97. Right. But notice in verse 25, who's winning the match? You can answer. Well, Jacob's not losing. It says that. Um, oh, we'll see that in just a second. But he hasn't overcome his opponent either. Neither of them are winning, actually, which is very interesting. And do note, verse 25, when it says, when he saw that he had not prevailed against him. Which person is this phrase describing? Who the, who's the one who saw that he had not prevailed against the other? It's the man. We'll talk about his identity in just a little bit. But it's the man. It's not Jacob. This man recognizes that Jacob is not, not being overcome. Talk about some tenacity in Jacob. And it only gets heightened because notice what the man does. 
he touches the socket of Jacob's thigh so that it's dislocated. Ow. And we can't tell exactly what kind of touch that was. It may have been like, you know, a little a little touch that mysteriously caused that dislocation, or it could refer to something a little bit more violent, a little bit more aggressive. The man could have worked on Jacob's thigh in such a way that it was dislocated. But notice that even after that touch, Jacob does not give up. In verse 26, the man asks Jacob to let him go. Don is about to break. Apparently, the, the man didn't want to stick around after Don. But Jacob refuses to let go. And he says, I'm not letting go, go unless you bless me. Then the man asks Jacob his name in verse 27. And Jacob gives it. My name is Jacob. And remember what Jacob means. Heel grabber, deceiver, trickster, supplanter. Doesn't have a nice association anymore. But in verse 28, the man gives Jacob a new name. He says, you shall be called Israel. And the reason for this name is given at the end of the verse. And a very interesting reason. For you have striven with God and man and have prevailed. And the name Israel can be translated a few different ways. It's a combination of the Hebrew verb sirah, which means to strive or to fight or to contend, and the word el, meaning God. So we could have Israel meaning God fights or God contends. Or conversely, it can mean he contends with God or he fights with God. Now I'm sure this name announcement made Jacob's eyes go very wide. He asked the name of his opponent, but the opponent will not say. But notice in verse 29 that the opponent, this man, submits to Jacob's request. He blesses Jacob. And then notice Jacob's response in verse 30. Jacob names that place where he spent the night, Peniel, a name that means face of God. Because Jacob said, I have seen God face to face and my life has been preserved. I didn't die, even though I saw God. Jacob's life may have been preserved, but he didn't leave the match unscathed. Verse 31 notes that Jacob was limping as he crossed over Penuel at Sunup. So what does all this mean? Let's ask some interpretation questions now. Who is the man with whom Jacob wrestled? Yeah, this is God. This is God in the form of the angel of the Lord. And we've already seen the angel of the Lord so far in Genesis. And we're going to keep seeing him in the Pentateuch. This was God in human form interacting with man. And I think we can say more specifically, this is the son of God. This is most likely the son of God before his incarnation. By the way, side note, don't think that Jesus, I'm sorry, that the son of God he would take on the name Jesus, was inactive before his incarnation. No, he was, he was very involved in the affairs of the world and of God's people. And we see that even here. In fact, Hosea, the book of Hosea, other end of the Old Testament, it confirms that this is God in the form of an angel. Hosea 12, verses 3 to 5. Hosea 12, 3 to 5 says, speaking of Jacob, in the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel. And there he spoke with us, even Yahweh, the God of hosts. Yahweh is his name. 
So don't misunderstand what Hosea is saying. He's not saying, oh, that was just some angel. No, he's saying that was the angel. He wrestled with God. And when he met him later, he knew it was Yahweh and Bethel. So amazing. Genesis 32, Jacob actually wrestled with God himself. Now that should floor us. That fact should floor us because what God does that. I mean, this is not what we would expect of God. But moreover, more interestingly, what God does this and doesn't prevail in the match and in a way seems to lose against Jacob. Why is it that God loses the wrestling match with Jacob? How could that be? What would you say? Yeah, Rob. Yeah, God, sorry, Rob, this is just grace. God let Jacob win. I mean, win. God let Jacob win. And I think the uh, hip dislocation, it's always seemed to me as a, uh, as a reminder to Jacob of that fact. You know, as Jacob limps away from this, this match, he would have known that, that that wrestling match could have gone way differently if his opponent wanted it to. I mean, God touched him and Jacob was in a large amount of pain. So Jacob's reminded, when you remember that sore hip, when you feel that sore hip, and you know who was really in control there. But you're right, Rob, this was grace from God. But why? Why would God do this? What was God communicating in this event? Now, that is a difficult question, and there are a lot of different interpretations. Before we, before I offer you my interpretation, let's ask a few other questions. Did God view Jacob's wrestling with him as a good thing or a bad thing? What do you think? Yeah, this is treated overall as a good thing. I think you're truly right, Ken. And the naming is involved with that. And this is a little bit counterintuitive, right? We would think, oh, you know, you fight with God, you wrestle with God. That's a bad thing. Not in this instance. There is a way to strive with God that is sinful. But Jacob's striving here is treated as a good thing, and he's rewarded for it. God blesses Jacob because Jacob was so tenacious in fighting, in contending with God. That's interesting. Now, another question. Considering Jacob's fearful but imminent encounter with Esau, what would have been the effect of God's statement and name change, you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed? What does that have to do with what's about to happen? Does it have anything to do with it? Remember, he's fearful. He prays to God. And then God has this whole wrestling match take place. And it says, you've prevailed with God and with men. How would that have affected Jacob? Yes, this is definitely to be an encouragement to Jacob. He says, you've striven with men in the past. And hasn't he? I mean, Jacob's life has been full of struggle. Struggle with Esau, struggle with Isaac, struggle with Laban, struggle with his wives. It says, 
But even though you've gone through all these struggles, you have emerged successful and victorious. And you've even succeeded in your struggle with God. You prevailed. So what's going to happen tomorrow with Esau? You will prevail. This is an encouragement from God that Jacob is going to prevail against his brother, even in this dangerous and difficult situation. God is encouraging Jacob. So now, what is the meaning of this whole wrestling match? How can we summarize it or describe it? Here's my view. I think there's at least two levels to this. On one level, God is reminding Jacob of his source of success. Yes, Jacob, you have prevailed in the past and you will prevail tomorrow. But why? Is it because you're so smart and so strong? No, it's because I let you. Why did Jacob win this wrestling match? Because God let him. God was showing Jacob, you will prevail, but it's because I'm the one letting you prevail. So I think that's one level of this, what's being communicated here. But then there's another level, which I think is even more intriguing. And that is, in this wrestling match, God was affirming his own value and commending the tenacious striving for God's blessing. I'll say that again. In this wrestling match, God was affirming his own value and commending the tenacious striving for God's blessing. And really, I think this is a theme we've seen throughout Jacob's life. Jacob's striving for God or for God's blessing has been his one redeeming quality from the beginning. And Jacob struggled a lot with folly and sin. He's, he's been devious. But Jacob fundamentally valued God's blessing and was determined to get it. And this is considered a good thing. You might think, oh, how selfish, Jacob, that you want God and you want his blessing for yourself. No, this is a good thing. God is communicating, you realize who I am and what my blessing means, what covenant with me means, then you actually dishonor me if you don't want this. If you just treat it like it's nothing. And wasn't that Esau's great fault? It says that Esau despised his birthright, that birthright that was connected to that covenant and that relationship and that blessing from God. Esau didn't care for it. That was a strike against Esau. That was a great, that was a great failure in Esau. Jacob always wanted God's blessing, and he was not willing to let go of it. Now, again, he went, around, he went about it the wrong way many times, but that fundamental desire was a good thing. And we sometimes, I think, we forget God's other attributes or we, we don't emphasize them all the way. We sometimes think of God as just a God of holiness, a God full of demands. Do this or else judgment. I require this. You better not do this. I demand this. And God is holy. Don't get me wrong. And he calls his people to be holy. But God is also fundamentally love. He is so compassionate and generous and good. Even his, his demands, the demands of his law, his commands, they are gifts. They are meant for good. God loves to save. God loves to bless. God loves to give. And so what is he constantly urging people to do in the Bible? Come and get it. Come to me. Ask of me, God says. Rely on me. Trust me. Let me do what you can't do. Let me save you. Let me provide for you. Let me protect you. As an example of this, consider what God says to Israel in Malachi. 
Malachi chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, this is when Israel's returned from exile, exile in Babylon, but the people are no longer, longer tithing for the temple and for the help of the poor. And this is what God says to them. Malachi 3, 10 to 12. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me in this, says Yahweh of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says Yahweh of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a de delightful land, says Yahweh of hosts. I mean, do you hear that? That command from God to tithe that was given in the law of Moses, God says, it's not to be a burden for you. It's an invitation, a blessing. Test me. See if I will bless you if you obey me. We'll consider Jesus' own words. Matthew 7, Matthew 7, verses 7 to 11, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? You then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? See, God is a God who loves to give to those who seek him, even of salvation and even of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, a person needs to come to God in God's prescribed way. And he's look for what God actually is offering rather than what he can obtain to satisfy his sinful lusts. But God always meant man to pursue God and to pursue him tenaciously. And again, think about what Jesus said himself. He gives the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18. And what was the point of that parable? Persist with God in prayer. Don't give up. God longs to give to you, but he wants you to persist with him. Keep going after him. And what does Jesus say about salvation itself? Luke 13, 24, Jesus says, Strive to enter the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. You see, Jesus says strive. We could also translate that fight, contend, so that you might get into God's kingdom. Because you know how valuable that is. You know what it means to be part of God's kingdom. Strive to get in. Not everyone is going to be able to. You better strive. There's an interesting illustration of, I think, this kind of tenacious striving, this committed striving from Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if you've ever read the book, but that analogy describing the, the Christian life. At one point, that main character, Pilgrim, and then called Christian, he's running from the city of destruction. And when his family, his unbelieving family, realizes that he's gone, they call out to him and ask him to turn back. But what Christian does is that as he hears their cries, he puts his fingers in his ears and he just shouts to himself, life, life, life. He knew he could not turn back. He knew he had to persevere. He had to be tenacious if he really wanted that blessing from God, if he really wanted life, if he really wanted God himself. 
I believe God's communicating the same things here in this wrestling match with Jacob. It's just an astounding message and given an astounding way. Jacob probably didn't understand at first that he was wrestling with God, though he may have sensed that the man he was wrestling with was no normal man. But God used that event to show that he approves of people striving with him. Now, not the sense of testing God by unbelief, but in the sense of testing God with belief. By saying to God, just like Jacob did, God, I know that life and blessing is with you. Therefore, I will not let go until you bless me. God, you promised that those who come to you in humble faith will be blessed. So that's why I've come. So great and holy God, I ask that you keep your promise. This kind of testing, this kind of testing of belief, it honors God because it affirms that he is as valuable as he really is. He is the greatest treasure. And what will God do for those who strive with him in that way? The same thing that he does for Jacob here. He will let that person win. He will say, oh, you've got me, and now I will bless you. And who doesn't want to experience that? This is who God is. He is a surprising God. He is a God of abounding covenant love. And he says, come and get it. I am the treasure. Come and seek me. Persevere, persist, be tenacious, fight and strive even for me. Now, quick application. Is this the way you pursue God? Could your relationship with God be described as a righteous kind of striving for him? Do you wrestle with God until he gives you what he promised? Now, make sure he's actually promised it to you. But if he has, don't let go. Don't let go until God blesses you. This was a commendable thing that Jacob did, and, and it is instructive for us. Now, if God lets you prevail with him, what need have you to fear anything from man? This was true for Jacob. Let's see how it came to pass. Let's look at Genesis 33 now. Genesis 33, 1 to 20. This is our last section. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids, and he put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And the maids came near with their children and they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel and they bowed down. And he said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, But find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Jacob said, no, please. If now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand. For I see your face, 
as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my gift which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, because I have plenty. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, let us take our journey and go. I will go before you. But he said to me, my Lord knows that the children are frail, and the flocks and the herds which are nursing are a care to me. If they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant. I'll proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Zaire. Esau said, please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Zaire. Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Succoth. Now, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. He came from Padan and camped before the city. He bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Now, for the sake of time, we'll just offer a few comments about this last section. Jacob faces Esau with his 400 men. And what is the result? Total reconciliation. Total reconciliation. After 20 years, Esau's murderous intent, it turned into a longing and an affection for his brother Jacob, the one who had supplanted him. How? How did this happen? Was it Rebecca's scheme all those years ago that get away, Jacob, so Esau can cool off? Or was it Jacob's gift that softened Esau's heart and made them made Esau favorable toward Jacob? Well, maybe these played a role, but I think you and I can both imagine how these things might have had the opposite effect. Yeah, sometimes people cool off when they're angry if you just give them time, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just become more angry. They become bitter. That could have happened with Esau. Or these gifts say, oh, you know, the gifts, they, they swayed Esau's heart. Well, they might have had the opposite effect. Esau might have been like, oh, what a cheap bribe. Is he trying to buy me off? These things could have worked in the opposite way. So why didn't they? Because God. Because of God's covenant love for Jacob. Because he promised, I'm going to take care of you. God kept his promises. By the way, do you notice how much Jacob is talking about God now? Verse 5, he says, God graciously gave me these children. Verse 10, seeing your favor, Esau, is like seeing the face of God. Verse 11, God graciously gave me this abundant wealth. And in verse 20, Jacob erects an altar, and he names the place El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. See, Jacob adopts the name given to him by God, which I think is an act of faith. And he also says, Yahweh is my God. Yahweh is Israel's God. I think Jacob is really starting to get it now. He's learned after all these years to fundamentally cling to the Lord. Yes, I'm trying to act smartly, but it's God who has to make things happen. And that's the same realization that you and I need to make, too. Look how faithful God has been to Jacob. He's kept all the promises that he gave to Jacob. He said, I'll be with you. I'll prosper you. I'll bring you back to this land in safety. 
I'll multiply your seed. God is doing all of that. God is a God of covenant love. He keeps covenant. He is faithful. He was faithful to Abraham. He was faithful to Isaac. Now he's faithful to Jacob. It's the point. If he was faithful to them, will he not be faithful to you if you seek him? That was the message to Israel. And that's the message to us. Now, this ends the major portion of Genesis that's about Jacob. Next time, when we pick it up with Jacob's sons, it will be focusing on the favored son, Joseph. And we'll have a number of lessons with him. Now, let me end by presenting to you some questions for application. We've seen a little bit of the application as we've done some interpretation as we go along, but here are a few other questions to get you thinking. First, have you learned the lesson that Jacob needed to learn? Do you trust in your own efforts to supply your needs, or do you trust in God even as you act wisely and diligently? What is evident in your life? What would trusting God look like for you in the areas of life in which you are currently anxious? We're tempted to anxiety in different ways. And sometimes we don't struggle with a thing and then we go into a new situation and we do. What would trusting God look like for you in that area? Here's another question. Do you strive with God in a righteous way or an unrighteous way? Are you testing him by unbelief, by belief? Are you determined that nothing will get in the way of you and God? Where do you need to strive more fiercely in order to obtain God and his blessing? We can't be nonchalant when it comes to God and when it comes to life that he offers. Maybe like, oh, you know, I'll get around to it maybe, but I got these interesting things in the world to be, to be part of. Look, the, the things of the world that we have that are not sinful, they are blessings from God, but nothing is to get in the way of you and God. You need to strive so that that doesn't happen. And when you do, you'll get the blessing. You'll get God. So where do you need to do that? And then third question. Do you see God as a God of generous and faithful love, as well as a God of holiness? Now, it's good for you to realize that God is holy. He will not accept you unless you come to Christ. Your good deeds will never be enough to make you right with God. And we need to realize that. That's how that's part of what's necessary and actually to obtain salvation. But the other side's necessary, too. You have to see God as a rewarder of those who seek him, right? Isn't that what the scripture says? He is a generous God. He is a loving God. And if you treat him as just some scary divine ogre to get off your back, you've dishonored him. He's a treasure. He is the treasure. Do you see that? Do you realize that? I have a few minutes. Questions about what you've heard today. Yes.
Right. Great question. At what point did Jacob realize that he was actually wrestling God? And if he didn't know it was God, why did he ask him to bless him? I don't know that we can say. I think there's a lot of mysteriousness here, and we're not given all the details. My guess is that Jacob realized that he was not wrestling with a, with a regular person. I don't know if he knew that it was God, but he knew that this was not normal. And so whoever this person was, perhaps he had a sense that it was God or might be connected with God. He knew that I want this person's blessing. But all of that, even if Jacob didn't know at the beginning, God was going to use this in an instructive way because God makes his identity known to Jacob when he changes Jacob's name. He says, you've prevailed, you've contended with God. That was indicating to Jacob, you know, the person you're wrestling with is really God. So if he didn't know by that point, or if he didn't know before, he certainly would know at that point. That's why he names the place Penuel, the face of God. But even if Jacob didn't know in the beginning, God saw all of it as a as a perfect figure or perfect message of what he wanted to communicate to Jacob, which is, I'm the one who's going to make you succeed tomorrow with Esau, just as I have all the all before this time. But also, it is right for you to strive for what I offer. It's right for you to strive to have me, to be in covenant with me. So that's my my best attempt at answering that question, but it's a good question. Other question? Yeah, you got another one. <laughs> I would I would agree. I think that's what m many uh, theologians have concluded, and the reason for this is Jesus's the Son's special role within the Trinity. Remember the the Trinity is a mysterious reality. And yet, even though God does everything together, there are distinct roles. And the son's role, as identified in the New Testament, is to be a mediator between God and man. He is also the revealer of God. And we're, we're told in another place in the scriptures that God is spirit and no one can see God. No one has seen God at any time. But then we're told it is the son who reveals God. So it would make sense that any time God appeared visibly in the Old Testament, it was God the Son who was exercising his role as mediator and explainer of God, God the Father, and um, God as a whole. So I would agree with you. I think this is Christ. Because it's not totally explicit, I can't be like, that's true, and if you don't believe it, it's heresy. Obviously, this is God, but I think there is a very, very, very strong possibility that this is the Son of God, specifically. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. And many theologians have said the same thing. If you have other questions or comments about this lesson or things related to it, please email me. That's it for this week. Next week, as I said, we pick up with the life of Joseph. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, you have been good to us by giving us this word. It is an amazing word because you are an amazing God. You are not what we expect. You are way more generous than we could have understood. You are way more loving. You are surely more holy than we anticipate when we just think according to our own our own thinking. But you are truly a wonderful God. And I pray, God, that the people of Calvary and anyone listening today, they would realize that. They would see that I need to have this God. 
I need what he offers. I want to be in covenant with him. I pray, God, that they would strive after you in a righteous way. And that God, you would enable them by faith to put, a, put aside any sin or distraction that would prevent them from doing that. I pray, Lord, you bless them and the rest of the service at Calvary. And continue to bless the fellowship and the instruction of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. See you next week.